Our message today is presented by John Freeman, President of Harvest USA. Today we have a special guest speaker, and he's going to be preaching from 1 Thessalonians 4. His name is John Freeman. I'm just going to read a few things before he gets started. He's with Harvest USA. He's the president of Harvest USA. And we've been wanting to get him here for a long time, so I'm so excited he's, he's finally here. Harvest USA, the, their vision statement is proclaiming Christ as Lord to a sexually broken world. And a couple of things I'll just read on from his thing. He has, been, he has a deep burden to see those who struggle with pornography, homosexuality, same-sex attractions, and sexual addictions experience changed lives through Jesus Christ. John spends most of his time helping churches be equipped to better take care of the hearts of individuals and families affected by and vulnerable to these struggles. John has taught classes at Westminster, Westminster Seminary, Reformed Seminary, and Karen. Whew, good, I got, got Karen in there. I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> Baptist, you know. So anyway, uh, his newest book is Hide or Seek, When Men Get Real with God About Sex. Really, really good book. I've used excerpts of that in sermons. You've heard those. Uh, John and his wife Penny have been married over 30 years and have three grown children. Their home is in the Philadelphia area. And the timing, is this amazing timing with all that happened with the Supreme Court? That, you know, here we are in New Hope and, and John's coming here to speak today. It's no accident that God... And also creation got rained out the last day so a lot of our teens got back for this. It's just God's timing. Um, uh, so uh, let me, John, come on up and I'll pray, pray for you and then we'll get you started. So let's welcome John Freeman. Yeah, Father, we just thank you for your perfect timing, and we thank you for bringing John here, and just pray you give him the strength and your spirit's leading, and just that our hearts would really be open to your word now, in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. It really is an honor and a privilege to be here at New Hope Community Church. Um, I have just been excited that Pastor Chuck asked me to come, and of all the dates that we could come this summer, this was the only one I could do it, so again, it's God's timing and sovereignty. Uh, but I've heard a long time about the work God's doing here at this church and I'm just so convinced that he has his hand on this body of believers in a special way. Really good, really great to be here. Uh, yeah, a couple of housekeeping details that your pastor asked me to, to just go over a little bit. We have a twofold mission in Harvest USA, again, to help individuals, families, and churches impacted by pornography, homosexuality, same-sex attraction, and sexual addictions, and also to help the church body know more how to minister effectively in this whole area. Um, you know, ours is kind of a ministry where our staff, and there are 13 of us now, it's hard to believe. Uh, when we first started the ministry 30 years ago, it was me and a telephone. And now, today, all five lines can be lit up at one time, which kind of amazes me. Uh, but it's a ministry where we see daily the, the devastating and deadly consequences of sex gone awry, uh, out of God's bounds. But it's also a place where we see God meeting people in very, very deep and profound ways, helping them to understand the gospel better and helping them to understand God's love for them. And what that does is it transforms our hearts and our lives. That's what really keeps us going. Uh, now, uh, I did bring a table of material out there, and it's probably stuff you've hardly ever seen before. Uh, there's a ministry sign-up newsletter out there you can get. Uh, we try to do these newsletters and our magazine so it will hit real issues that we as believers need to understand better, that we need to be able to articulate, that we need to be able to enter into people's lives with. For one, one is called, What Does Walking in the Light of Freedom Look For with Pornography and Sexual Addiction? 
Suffering with temptation. Temptation is everywhere, and our own willpower is our weakest defense. Also, engaging our gay friends, relatives, and colleagues with the gospel. And uh, we actually this year turned this into a magazine that comes out twice a year. Uh, that has got like seven articles in it. So if you'd like to get that, you can sign up for it, and we'll send it to you twice a year. Uh, you'll also find some of our new books and, and booklets out there. Uh, those are just for you to look through. Please don't take them, but stand there and look through them. You can order them online. There's a card there that tells you how you can order all our resources. Uh, also, we have hundreds of things that I couldn't bring. And if you go to our website, harvestusa.org, you'll see a lot of those articles and uh, things like that. And this actually, the pastor made, told me to please say uh, two things we rely on at Harvest. Number one is the prayer of God's people. I don't think we would be here 30 years down the line if it was not for the prayer of God's people. Because uh, there have been too many schemes of Satan to derail us and actually tear down our ministry over the years. So it's, it's a miracle, but it's God's people and prayer. And it's also the support of God's people. Like any organization that's missions-oriented, we depend on God's people who want to see a ministry of truth and mercy, of redemption and hope. So uh, thank you for that. Now, whether it, uh, in all the ways, we have seven or eight Bible study support groups that go on through the week for men and women struggling with different sexual things, for parents. Our, our largest growing set of Bible study support groups are parents who have an adult child uh, or late teen who has come out and said, guess what, Mom, I'm gay. Guess what, I'm lesbian. And that throws the most Bible-believing parents into a quandary. And so one of the things we do is help, help them walk the road of saying, I love you, you're part of our family, you always will be, but I can't support and put my encouragement behind what you're doing because I think it's harmful. And that's a, that's a hard road for parents to walk for many years. So that's, we probably have 50 sets of parents if they all come uh, for those two groups. Um, so please pray for those things. Now, let me get to what I really want to talk to you about today. And that is uh, uh, a passage uh, that we can't do as much uh, diligence as I'd like to, but uh, we're going to kind of uh, look at it and think about it in terms of broken sexuality. It's a passage that's not real, uh, discussed a lot, uh, it's not read a lot. We know it's there. We kind of skim over it sometimes because it, it really is a very, it, it's serious words. It's, it's stunning words, uh, but it's uh, hope-filled words as well. And I don't think there's a greater day and time that we need to understand this passage and incorporate it into our lives. Uh, but it's just so opposite to how people think today. It's just so opposite to our own histories and our own struggles sometimes and our own backgrounds. But we're going to look for a few minutes at 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. Uh, and I'll read that for you. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. You know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be holy that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn how to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like those who don't know God, and that in this matter no one should defraud others or take advantage, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives us his Holy Spirit. Let's pray, please. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who has given us your mind and your heart about deep issues of our hearts. Lord, this 
passage be an example. Lord, would you please take your word today and do what you need to do in each of our lives. Uh, Where we are discouraged, bring us courage. Where we are disheartened, bring us hope. Where we are flirting with things we should not flirt with, bring us the power to bring them to your cross. But Lord, meet each of us in a personal and powerful way that your word may not return void. In Jesus' name. Uh, shortly, we just want to look at this passage and think about it in three ways. I want us to think about the stuff or the content of the reality of this passage is, number one, it's crazy to the culture. Secondly, we're going to look at it and see how the reality of the struggles in our lives are often concealed in the church. And thirdly, I want to look at how, most importantly, God gives clean clothes for corrupt people. Okay, so how this is crazy to the culture, how it's often concealed in the church, but how God gives clean clothes for corrupt people. Crazy to the culture. Now, 1 Thessalonians is is thought to be Paul's first missionary letter, written almost a little over 20 years after the crucifixion of Christ. It's the letter from an exile missionary to people. Actually, the word brethren means a family unit. Children, brothers, sisters, husbands and wives, men and women. Uh, to the family unit at the church at Thessaloniki. And if you were to read the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians, you would find Paul really commending the church about the good report he's heard about them uh, and how they're progressing in the faith. But in this chapter 4, he takes a much more admonishing and uh, uh, kind of preachy tone in that he now wants to talk to them about continuing on, But he wants to talk to them about the difficulties that any young, energetic, enthusiastic, vibrant church like New Hope Community has, especially as they seek to live out their faith and walk in Jesus Christ, and how not to bring the baggage that you've brought in as a believer to continue on in Christ. Does that make sense? He wants to commend them to keep on, but now he's going to turn to a special area that people are more prone to continue holding on to. This admonition to please the Lord is what this passage is about. The fact that he's calling the church, us, the Thessaloniki church in the year about uh, 50 AD, 55 AD, um, to live a holy life, to avoid sexual immorality, to learn how to control your body, of course, which doesn't come unless you learn how to control your heart, uh, was crazy and radical to the church at that time. But guess what? Isn't it crazy and radical today to the church of this time as well? Uh, You know, I'll never forget about a couple years ago, I was speaking to a group of about 170 men at a morning breakfast, and I read the same passage I read just now to you. And as soon as I finished reading that passage, actually a young guy about 30 jumps up and says, that's crazy. God can't expect anybody to live like that anymore. And you know, I've heard a lot as I've spoken over 30 years, but that kind of took me back a little bit. But then I realized, this young man is probably only voicing what half of the guys in this, in this room uh, kind of believe. Uh, but you know, one of the things that was true of the early church was that as they incorporated the gospel in these areas of their life, they stuck out like a sore thumb. I mean, it became what is known as kind of inverted living. But inverted living, what do I mean by that? It's just this, people who were once very stingy with their money and their possessions, but very liberal with their bodies, I'll give it to anybody, 
it became just the opposite. So as Jesus became more real in people's lives in the early church, they became more liberal with their possessions and money. As in Acts 2.45, seeing that we have all things in common, selling our possessions and giving it to anyone who has need. So they became more liberal with their giving and their finances. But guess what? They became more stingy with their body. So it just was the opposite. And it made them stick out like a sore thumb because they realized it's not mine anymore. None of it. It all belongs to Christ, especially my body. I'm bought with a price. I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, he doesn't mince words here. As I said, these are some hard words. Uh, he admonishes by contrasting the unsaved with the saved, the regenerate with the non-regenerate. He says, I ask and urge you to do this more and more. What? Learn how to control yourself. Not in lustful passion. Another version says passionate lust like those who don't know God, but in a holy and honorable way. Now, I don't have to tell you that that kind of living or desiring to live like that is just not very high priority for most people. <laughs> for most people out there in the street, the most people you work with, people you go to school with, your friends, the purpose to live like that is kind of crazy unless you have a relationship with Christ. Uh, now, at Harvest USA, we often uh, do definitions of things so that people understand more about what they're dealing with. And... One of the definitions I uh, termed several years ago about lust was this. Lust is that heart hunger in me that takes those made in the image of God, whether they're a man or a woman, on a magazine page, in a DVD, on the internet, in real time, up here, and reduces them to what I can get out of them to fill my hungry heart. And when we talk about that with folks in our ministry, they say, yeah, that's me, but I don't want to be like that. And what that shows is by nature, lust disregards, it uses, it devours. And Paul says here, although that's the nature of our fallen hearts, it's what characterizes those outside of Christ and should not go on characterizing us as followers, of, of, as believers. On the contrary, it's that from which we need to be saved. Now, one of my favorite theologians was a guy who preached in the mid-1700s. His name was William Law. Probably nobody ever heard of him, but I bet you've heard of his three most famous disciples, George Whitfield, Charles Wesley, and John Wesley. So if there had been no William Law, we might not have had those guys. But here's, here's something William Law said in a sermon around 1850, I mean 1750. He said this, We need to know one thing. The gospel consists wholly in being saved from ourselves, from that which we are by nature, and from that which our hearts go to naturally. I like that. It means I'm always in need of saving. I'm always in need of being redeemed. I'm always in need of being restored. Uh, but it shouldn't surprise us that uh, in this microwave, impersonal, on-demand, false intimacy world we live in, sexually speaking, that the culture is just getting more savvy about how it markets this, these things. I read the other day where there are now over uh, 10 million pornography websites. In fact, I read where if you were to hit print, think, don't think about that, but if you were to hit print, it would take 600 buildings the size of the Library of Congress just to house it. I think the, the reality of Genesis 4 that says sin is crouching at the door and its desires to have you is so true. We don't have to go looking for this. It's kind of with us. Uh, it doesn't surprise us that sexting is the new rage among 14 to 17-year-olds. It shouldn't surprise us. Uh, I saw a piece of literature not long ago uh, actually in a, um, 
uh, at a university where, uh, uh, that says, thank you're gay, you'll never know till you try. Uh, it shouldn't surprise us that the American Association of Trial Lawyers, that's divorce lawyers, say that pornography usage of some point, some type, is now a factor in 68% of all divorces. Uh, so in a sense, Paul really is making a big deal about this, about what we do with our hearts and our minds. Maybe that's why we tend to avoid this, this passage at times. Uh, but one of, the, one of the truths is, as one of the staff, well, I was talking about what I was going to speak about at the staff meeting uh, this week, and one of the staff said this, he said, really what this passage is doing is it's demonstrating that who we are sexually reveals who we are spiritually. Uh, the Lord cares about what we do with our bodies and our hearts because it reveals the allegiance of our hearts, uh, both to Christ and the community of believers. Uh, so when that's betrayed, everybody suffers. In other words, the crux of this passage, you might say, is that our sanctification, our growth in holiness, is always linked to how we live our sexual lives. Uh, and the text, again, gives the impression uh, that it's actually very unnatural for a person to want to live like that to want to submit their hearts and their lives to Christ without a deep encounter of Jesus on an ongoing basis. Uh, and you know, it's only when Jesus through the Holy Spirit begins to mix it up with us that we even have the desire or the will or the power uh, to want to live changed lives. But if we're honest, we'd say even then it's a heck of a challenge, isn't it, in today's world and with our own hearts. Uh, but how do you learn to do that? Well, Titus 2.11 says something important about this. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. It, the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live upright, controlled, godly lives right now. That's a wonderful verse to hold on to when you're struggling in the midst of whatever you're struggling with. Because it says there's a power greater than me in me that can help me obey the Lord. Because not only do we bring the baggage of some of this stuff in our own relationship with Christ, but uh, people coming out of our culture today, coming into the church, uh, bring a lot of scars uh, and a lot of enslavement in these areas. And we're called to live a holy life, but how are we going to get there? How are we going to get there? You know, one of the things I know when you become a believer is that God changes our record. He posts the record of Jesus over our record so that when he looks at us, he's really looking at Jesus so that everything Jesus has done well in pleasing the Father is how he sees us. Uh, he brings us camaraderieship in the body. He brings us the hope of heaven. But one thing he doesn't do when we become believers, he doesn't give us a lobotomy. <laughs> and by, what, what that I mean is if it's characterized our life to go to other things for a sense of life, we're probably going to be tempted with that a lot. A lot. Whether it's been money or uh, your reputation uh, or your image, or it's uh, your sexuality or sex, you're going to be tempted to go there because you've defined your life by that in the past. Uh, you know, it's, this passage shows that God has given us a different calling, and the working out of that calling is very important, uh, but it's a lifelong thing. And it's also often attempted by many of us in secrecy and silence, with ups and downs that are often shame-filled in isolation, but, but even attempting to do this again, as Paul says here, is crazy to the culture. But often as we do that, and this is the second point, uh, it's concealed in the church. You know, when I first began, well, actually it was 35 years ago next week that my wife and I drove our 25-foot 
moving truck from Tennessee, yes, I'm from the South, if you haven't already discerned that, from Tennessee to go to seminary. And, you know, I had the idea I'm going to be here three years and go back, hopefully, to the South <laughs> uh, and be a pastor somewhere. But, but God had a different idea. But I remember sitting in a missions class, one of those classes that talked about missionary work. And I had a professor uh, that came in one day and he said, and this was a class we learned about the philosophy of mission work in Africa, Asia, South America, whatever. He said, we're going to talk about a different mission field today. We're going to talk about an unreached people and a hidden people. Now, those are missionary terms. And he went on to say, this was 1984. He went on to say, uh, the unreached people in our culture is often the gay community because the, because the uh, church says, hands off, I don't have anything to do with them. And I remember his words, therefore, they're the fastest growing people group in America 30 years ago. But he said even bigger than that are the, are the hidden people. Those are folks that come into the churches, come into a, a relationship with Christ, but because of the background noise of their sexual struggles, uh, just kind of sit there bound up uh, because they don't understand how the gospel applies to people and sets them free. Uh, and he said, of course, that's a, a majority of people uh, in our churches at, at some point in time. And it's often complicated by churches. I'm so glad this is not a church like that. This, but uh, some churches who say, well, we don't talk about those things around here. And therefore, we kind of further help keep people in their own prisons. Uh, but, but I found many hidden people uh, in our churches struggling and trying to deal with this kind of on their own or even going to places that might not be wholly gospel-based, but they're trying to do something. Often compounding this, of course, is our innate ability to keep secrets. If for no other reason than fear or not wanting to risk being exposed, you know, uh, our fear and our shame and our tendency to go it alone in this area can be very crippling and paralyzing. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book your pastor mentioned, Hide and Seek. Uh, it, uh, it's to help move people from this, from this space to this space where they realize this, I need help with my life in this area and I've got to reach out and God still cares for me. You know, one of the things we have to do, and again, this is not your church, but I feel like I'm preaching to the choir a little bit, but we have to become unshockable realists in the church today uh, as, again, because there's a whole lot of scarring going on out there. I mean, I grew up in the 50s and 60s, pre-internet, and I had to deal with my own history of sexual scarring. It took years to understand how the gospel applied to it. And even then, it was not something I had to do. It was a community event. It was men and women that God brought to uh, alongside me. Because, you see, uh, uh, 46 years ago, this weekend... When I was a 13-year-old, I was watching the Stonewall riots on the news in New York City in Greenwich Village. And I was saying, that's me. That's who I want to be. So I grew up very gender-confused, very unsure of who I was as a man, all these kind of things. The, the, the evil one uh, worked on that in my life. And by the time I was 13 or 14, I was telling my uh, family, you know, I'm gay. Get used to it. But again, God had other ideas. Now, uh, I love to tell you that story at some point. I'll tell you personally, or you can call me and talk to me. I don't have time to get into it. But it was a community event, uh, the body that, that came alongside me and helped me. And we have to show as a church that we're not fragile in these areas. We can handle these things because the gospel speaks to these things, because God handles these things. Uh, and I'm not sure most churches do a very good job at that, uh, but you guys do. Uh, 
because more and more uh, people are being characterized by the description I'm going to read you now. And when I read an email or something like that or a letter, it's always with permission uh, to be a teaching tool. But here is an email I got uh, not long ago. It says, I'm 23 years old. I became a Christian several years ago in high school, uh, but I struggled heavily with pornography. I grew to love Christ more and more. However, by continued flirtation with sexual sin and the deceitful drawings and lies it promised, well, it all began to compete with my walk with God. My desires began to draw me away as I began to compromise more and more. Soon it became an addiction. The reason I read this too is nobody usually goes to the worst thing. They kind of sugarcoat it. This guy doesn't. It's been downhill ever since, passing each year now, barriers and boundaries I never thought I would. I live in depression and avoid people. Giving in to these things has taken a toll on my identity and my relationships. I do feel sorrow from time to time, and I can't believe that I would give up what I've known for all this stuff. I isolate myself. I rage against sound and wise judgment, even though I still feel God convicting me from time to time, but now sinking deeper into pornography, chat rooms, and cyber sex. I'm proud, narcissistic, and self-righteous. He did have a moment of clarity, Holy, Holy Spirit clarity. The times I've been faithful to God becoming more of a distant memory at 23. But, and this is why I share this, I know I want to, to regain the essence of who I once was and what God wants me to be, but I see no way out. Help. You hear the desperation in that young guy's voice? Uh, I share that for a couple other reasons. It kind of really shows how no one sets out to get hooked on sin or compulsion, compulsive things, do they? You just take the next step. I also share that because it shows that we really do, biblically speaking, become oriented to whatever it is we give our hearts to over and over again. We will start to look like that. And I don't have time to go into that, but if you read Psalm 115, it talks about what happens when you give your heart over to something that seems like life. You actually become dead inside. Uh, Verse 7 in this passage says this, God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. For an increasing number of folks, I think, in our congregations, that's becoming kind of a pie-in-the-sky dream that has nothing to do with reality. And oftentimes the church in its silence is really hurting a lot of people in that we're not helping them learn how to do what? Learn how to struggle well. How do you struggle well with things that uh, want to destroy your life? Uh, how do you help people... Uh, understand what Martin Luther said about sin and temptation when he likened it to a bird flying over your head. He said, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. <laughs> I like that. Written 500 years ago. How do we help people understand that? Uh, how do we help them deal with the idols of their hearts? Uh, because there's so much in us in our culture today that really just lends people to giving up and being hopeless, isn't it? Uh, I mean, C.S. Lewis, 75 years ago, said something about that in his book, Mere Christianity. Now, this is 75 years ago. Here's what he said. Our warped natures, the devils who tempt us, and all the contemporary propaganda for lust in 1940, they all combine to make us feel that the desires we try to resist are so natural, so normal, and so healthy, it's impossible and abnormal to try to resist them. Does that make sense? Read that again. Our warped natures, the devils who tempt us, and the contemporary propaganda for lust, in other words, the world of flesh and the devil, 
combined to make us feel that the desires we try to resist are so natural and so healthy that it's impossible and abnormal to even try to resist. I mean, isn't that what our culture says? Isn't that what our hearts say sometimes? That's why we need one another uh, to walk along each other with these lives. If we're not careful, though, uh, we can also be a conspirator in helping people begin to live double lives. And we have a lot of people, most of the people that come into Harvest are, would say they're believers, 95% of them. And uh, one of the things I learned, I see that they learned how to do is that, like, 19 learn how to compartmentalize these things in their life. So here I am following Jesus, but I have this thing over here I have to hold on to. Because I don't believe, like the song you shared, that Jesus is really enough. So when you do that as a lifestyle, then what happens is at 19 you learn to do that, and at 29, at 39, at 40, at 50, you're still having that split life. Does that make sense? Unless God does something to interrupt, uh, to take me from here to here. Our silence also means we never help people learn how to do what? Learn to, to, yes, control their own body and hearts, but access the throne of grace in time of need. That's what Hebrews 4 says, accessing the throne of grace, the cross of Jesus, in our time of deepest need. At the first inkling and stirring of our flesh, of our mind, of our hearts, that would start us down a, a bad path. Uh, we don't help people learn how to realize that the living the Christian life is a life of repentance. It's not just something you did one time, you know, 10 years ago on February 14th, you know, 2004. It's something you do all the time, living a life of repentance. I love what Tim Keller says uh, uh, about repentance. He says this. He says, uh, repentance is learning how to kill that which is killing me without killing myself. <laughs> repentance is learning how to kill that which is killing me without killing myself. Now, I don't know anybody that can do that by themselves. Our hearts are too deceitful. We need other people to come along beside us. And it comes from starting to know and reflect and owning parts of your heart that just kind of stink. You know, that uh, uh, it's helping people with soul care on desperate, desperate levels so that they see Christ more clearly. Um, and uh, that, they, that they begin to see that, that Jesus offers far more real life than the false and counterfeit life that our idols and compulsions offer. Uh, and it's not just about doing something, doing this, not doing that. It's more about not doing, but who, who is Jesus in our lives. I love a book. If you've never read this book, it's called The Valley of Vision. It's, uh, it's a, a Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers. And I've learned that there's about 350 of those prayers in there, but I've learned that about 330 of them apply directly to struggles that we have sexually speaking in our lives. But here's what one of the prayers said. Teach me to believe, Lord, that if I would ever have any sin conquered, I must not only labor to conquer it, yes, but I must invite Christ in continually to dwell in its place. He must become more dear to me than are my lusts. His sweetness, power, and life must reside there. So it's more than just doing this and not doing that. It's Christ becoming the affection of our heart against the other false idols in our lives. Uh, you know, I was talking to this uh, guy not long ago in our, came in our ministry about the idea of uh, assessing the throne of grace in his time of need, of learning to run to the cross in your most unholy, reprobate, terrible moments and throwing yourself on Jesus, seeing his pain 
for you on the cross. Seeing his mercy, seeing his cleanliness for our uncleanliness, seeing his perfection, again, for our imperfection. And as I was explaining this to this guy, he said something very realistic, very authentic. He said, John, that's a novel idea, running to the cross. I don't know much about that, but I do know how to slink back. I do know how to slink back. I knew how to slink back when I've worked up the courage to go ask for forgiveness again. I do know how to slink back after I've punished myself enough by staying away. And I feel okay again. By the way, that's not repentance. That's penance, right? That's penance. Uh, there's an old adage that says time heals all wounds, but not in God's world. The only thing that heals our wounds are his wounds for us in our place so that we're brought to our knees again at realizing the patience, tolerance, and love of Christ for us. That's what we help teach people a lot at Harvest. But why is it that we have so much problem with sex anyway, by the way? Uh, I've often asked that, and many people in our ministry have asked that. Well, Paul Tripp, does anybody know who he is? He's written several good books, but one of the things he says in a book, in an article called Teaching Kids About Sex, he says this, sex is one of the most key ways a person expresses his or her identity. It always reveals, A, I'm at the center of my universe and the master of my life, or B, I'm a created independent creature relying on Christ. He says sex is always about worship because it's the most reasonable facsimile to worship. The way I handle it or mishandle it will always reveal what's ruling my heart. Sex and the way we express it in our submission and rebellion will always tell whether we're, li we're living in a relationship with God or an idolatrous one. Now listen to this. Sex as a revealer of what's going on in my heart demands my acute attention and awareness at all times. Examining myself in the light of God's standards of absolute purity, sex and sexuality always confronts me with my inability. I recognize God's standards as good, but my heart and life is prone to wander to places where I'm in control. Therefore, sex and my proneness to misuse it reveals my ongoing need for mercy and grace. And this is what he says at the end. In other words, God's call to holiness in this area is as impossible for me to achieve in and of myself as it would be to save myself. Again, it becomes something the Holy Spirit must work and also people around me. Okay, so we see in the ethos of this passage that trying to be like this and live like this is crazy to the culture. As we struggle with this in different areas of our lives, it's often concealed, and, and our fear of man, our fear of being exposed, our shame keeps us from wanting to let other people in. Uh, and again, that's one of the reasons we write a lot of our resources and, uh, and most of our books and things like that is to help people move from here to here and see that God wants to jump in this pit with you. Uh, but really, the third point, and the most important, is that God gives clean clothes for corrupt people. Now, you know... The gospel, the gospel really is for sinners. For the dishonest, the shady, the damaged, the would-be frauds. I mean, that's the essence of what the word corrupt means. Uh, and it would be a terrible thing if we just stayed there, wouldn't it? Uh, if God hadn't acted. But he has, and he does. I, I studied the classics at the University of Tennessee. Uh, in fact, I can remember my first, my Greek class, we started off with 29 people, and four semesters later, there were three of us left. <laughs> uh, but one of the things I learned in studying some philo Greek philosophy 
was about Aristotle. Now, Aristotle believed there was a force behind all things, but it was a very impersonal, far away, uninvolved force. So much so that he called this force the unmoved mover. Folks, that's not our God. If anything, we could say our God is the moved mover. He's the person who is moved by the plight and struggles of his children in all kinds of ways, but especially when it involves sex and our sexuality. He is moved by the plight of, our, of us and wants to get right into the mess of it all. Now, the key to this whole passage is that it makes sense of it. If there's a common word that stuck out to you in 1 Thessalonians 4 through 8, does anybody know what it was? The word holy. Four times in that passage, holy. You know, the hope of this is that God comes and sets up residence in our hearts. And we want to say, oh, isn't that wonderful? Really? Now, sometimes I say in me, in my heart, uh, I can't understand that because there's so much garbage there, so much junk, so many habits that I foster that I want to let go of but sometimes can't. But he knows, and he sends the Holy Spirit in our hearts to guide us and love us and show us a new way to get to the bottom of it. Uh, you know what he wants, the Holy Spirit, uh, what he wants to do in our life, he wants to pull a Star Trek. Yeah, that's what I said, Star Trek. You know, uh, I think they've come out with now the 17th sequel, right, or something. But uh, when I was a teenager at 13, uh, on Thursday night in 1966, uh, I can remember it well. I, could, I can envision it at 8 o'clock. Uh, Star Trek coming on. It was a big ball. It was painted like the earth. Probably some kind, maybe even a basketball was painted. I don't know. And then you had that cutout. It's probably a cardboard cutout of the Enterprise. You remember it going around? But here's how it started off. It said, the five-year mission of the Starship Enterprise to search out strange new worlds, to boldly go where no man has gone before. I think they still use that sometimes. That's the role of the Holy Spirit in mind in your life. Do you know that? From now until we reach heaven. Paul mentions the Holy Spirit three times here. It's key to this passage. But notice, one of the themes is it's not for everyone. It's only for followers of Jesus. Secondly, it's, he's there for our good to show us and convict us of the ways that we're so unlike Christ, where our characters are so ungodlike, so they can be shaped not by continuing shame or isolation or fear or contempt, but that that might be shaped by the hope of the gospel. Christ in us. Uh, and you know, all we have to do is, is admit our need to those things. Uh, admit our need and admit the fact that we are continuously in need. You know, we, we naively think there'll be one day on this earth that our hearts won't want to go in bad directions. <laughs> I don't think that's true. I think as long as we live on this earth, our hearts are going to want to go in bad directions. There are going to be things that vive for our worship. Um, we have to remember that it's our nature to live as paupers, but Christ calls us to live as children, children of the King. Let me read you something a pastor wrote. This is one of my favorite, a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. Anybody ever heard of him? He's a guy who was the, he was the personal physician to the King of England back in the uh, 1920s, but he became a believer, gave that up and became a pastor. And in his commentary on Romans 5, he says this, What, God do, what Jesus does is introduce us into the presence of Christ. 
He brings us into a relationship with God in which we can receive all the blessings and benefits we have never received before. Everything is entirely changed. It's like the case of a man who has been spent, spent his whole life on the street outside of a great palace. Inside the palace are endless riches and wealth. There's a banquet being served 24-7. But he's on the outside shivering with no right or ability to get in. Then in a marvelous way, he's invited in, provided with a tuxedo, and brought into the presence and introduced to the one throwing the banquet. Because of Jesus Christ, God has become one who delights to see us coming at all times. We not only have this new attire and introduction, but God is always smiling with his favor on us. He delights to bless us more concerned with our welfare than we could ever be. So that's why we can rush into his presence. Being in Christ in grace means we rush in with boldness, full confidence. We have access to the throne of grace and of a great palace, but we often live like spiritual paupers. Whereas we're meant to live like princes and children of a heavenly king, because we have constant access. We don't go in and out. You don't, you're, you're always in or you're always out. You're not halfway. You're not in grace some days and out of grace other days. You stand in grace. You don't creep into it, crawl into it, shuffle into it, or slink into it. It's who you are as a child of God. So when we start to believe that on deep levels, it can change everything. Tim Keller again says that when we start to experience a joy from knowing this, the idols that hold this prisoner can be disempowered. Notice I didn't say totally destroyed or act like they're not there, but disempowered. We don't have to follow their commands anymore. So he comes and he takes up residence in us. He acts as the defender of faith, of our faith before the Father. Uh, but here's the thing that makes us and should make us be able to be courageous about addressing these things and helping other people address these things. And that is that, that God always mingles his grace. He mingles his grace with our corruptions. Now, what do I mean by that? And by the way, he does that as a rule, not as an exception. Um, I was reading Hebrews 11 uh, uh, not long ago. And uh, you know, Hebrews 11 is that passage about the great heroes of the faith. In fact, he mentions 32 of them. Then he says this word, and many more. So we know there were many more. But he mentions 32 of them, examples. And as I started to read through those things, some of them were interesting. One of them was David. Now, you know, David was amazingly used by God. Uh, a good portion of the scripture comes from David's outpouring. We're all aware of the Psalms, and especially Psalm 51, which is his psalm of repentance. He was a man after God's own heart. Uh, but on the other hand, David is also a man that was oftentimes, and you can just read this in scripture, uh, he was a man mixed with much pride and arrogance. He sometimes went before God, before God said go. Uh, he uh, had his own way of doing things at times, and we learn through uh, other parts of the Bible, like some of the historical books like Chronicles and, and, and Samuel, Kings, that uh, David had seven wives and, quote, many concubines. You know what that is? Somebody you sleep with that's not your wife. I'm thinking, wow, I mean, here's a guy who's redeemed but still has a lot of unredeemed stuff in his life. He's a hero? Yeah. And then I kept reading through and I got to Samson. I thought, Samson, oh, Lord, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> now, Samson is the person whose uh, face would be on the, the tabloids at the checkout counter at the grocery store. 
He was the Charlie Sheen, the uh, Justin Bieber, whatever of his day. When you think about him. In fact, a couple of things about Samson. You know, one time when he was a young man, he saw a young girl, a young lady, by a stream. And uh, you know what God had told his people is don't marry uh, those who don't know Christ. Don't marry those who don't know God, who are outside of the household of faith. Because why? Because they will turn your heart south. But Samson saw this beautiful young woman. And he said to his parents, go get her for me. And they put up a little fight. They said, isn't there a woman among the Hebrews? No, go get her for me. Shows they were helicopter parents, <laughs> you know, 3,000 years ago. Uh, but they did. Uh, secondly, we know that uh, Samson routinely visited houses of prostitution. Uh, we know about his, love, his lust for Delilah, which was almost the kingdom's downfall but was his downfall. Lord, these are heroes of the faith? It doesn't seem like it. People who are redeemed, but lots of unredeemed stuff going on. You know, what I think that is is a picture of a Christian life in a sense. It's a picture of the fact that we are redeemed, but God is committing to rooting out all the unredeemed stuff, right, in our hearts and our lives, through his spirit, through other people. Uh, there's lots of corruption still mixed up in us, in our hearts and lives. Um, another one of my favorite books is a book that was written in 1666 called The Godly Man's Picture. It's a wonderful book, you know, but like most Puritans, you can only read about three pages and you've got to think about it the rest of the day. <laughs> but it's the kind of group, somebody, somebody was telling us, because we, we do resources for people, guys and women to go through groups, and they'll also, hey, we did your resource, what's next? We did this resource. And I said, buy this book and it will last you two years to get through <laughs> with your men or your women in your, in your group. But in this book, The Godly Man's Picture, he has a chapter called Comfort to the Godly. I actually think it should have been called Comfort to the Scoundrels, <laughs> but it's called Comfort to the Godly. And here's what Thomas Watson says. Do you ever with weeping eye look upon Jesus and bring all those lusts, lusts that you love to him? You see, there are in the best of believers interweavings of sin and grace. A dark side mixed with a light side. Much pride mixed with much humility. Much earthliness mixed with much heavenliness. Even in the born again, there is often more corruption than grace. So much smoke that you can barely discern the fire of grace. So much bad passions at times that you can hardly see any good ones. Now, I love what he says now. A Christian in this life is almost like a glass of beer that has more foam in it than beer. Yet, when God puts his tenderness into the heart, he will always cherish the work of the Spirit there. Christ will never quench the remnants of grace because a little grace is as precious as a lot of grace. I love that. This side of heaven, grace and holiness will always be mixed in with our corrupt hearts to refine our hearts. We have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So in a sense, God doesn't deal with us as we are, but as we're going to be. He doesn't see us in a given day as we really are, but as we are in Christ. That's his kind of love and patience and tolerance for us as we come to him. 
uh, but he also does things. He closes with the righteousness of Christ, but he's also committed to, re, to, to removing the grave clothes in our lives. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, in, in John chapter 11, we all know the story of uh, Jesus is in Bethany, and he gets word that his best friend is sick, Lazarus, one of his best friends, and about to die. So what does he do? He stays in Bethany three more days so, until he dies. And then he goes back. And of course, Martha and Mary meet her, him, and in the same kind of paraphrase, they say, if you only had been here, he wouldn't have died. You could have prevented this. But he goes to the grave, to the stone. We know the story. He has a small body of believers with him, the really church, the first church. And he calls Lazarus to come out of the grave, and he comes out. He's, he's made alive again. But interestingly, he comes out, and it says what? He's bound up. He has all these strips of cloth that keep him. And you get the, you get the kind of idea. He's kind of like a mummy. And, and Jesus starts to unroll the strips, right? No. He turns to the little church there. And I'll never forget this. It's the first verb you have to translate in Greek. Now you loose him. You set him free. Isn't that interesting? It's a real insight into the body of Christ and our role in helping people be loosed from and relieved of the grave clothes, even as we come to Christ, in all sorts of areas. Uh, we help bring new life to them as well as Christ has. Now, Paul says, as we get back to this passage, that to continue to live as a follower of Christ with the fallen desires of our hearts, sexually speaking in this way, is what? It's false worship. What is false worship? What is idolatry? It's giving adoration, attention, allegiance, and affection. Let me say that again. It's giving adoration, attention, allegiance, and affection to anything else but God. And one of the things that happen is when we come to Christ, he starts putting his, his finger on lots of idolatries in our lives, and especially our sexual ones. Again, because it reveals, who am I going to worship? Uh, that's why not only is it crippling and life-robbing to continue in those things unabated. I don't mean struggling. Three steps forward, one step back. I mean by saying, Christ, this is mine. You have no authority in this area. That's when we're on dangerous ground uh, to, to ourselves and other people around us. Because you see, it's in our honesty about how broken we are. It's in our desperation. It's in our neediness that God wants to work the most. You believe that, don't you? I don't sometimes. Well, I don't think it's our nature to believe that. Uh, we believe God will help us when we've helped ourselves. What, they, they did a, uh, recently on the radio, I heard these, these sayings that people thought were from the Bible. One of them was, God helps those who help themselves. Yeah, that's a Bible verse somebody said. No, it's not. I'm sorry. That comes from falling this deep in here. Uh, it's in our brokenness that, that Jesus wants to and he yearns to do his most powerful, most creative, most redemptive work. It's the essence of what this passage really is about. The Holy Spirit making that possible as a desire and as a fact. But it's only the broken who need Holy Spirit power, isn't it? And let me just kind of end with, with, with a little illustration. Uh, 
there's a statue that was sculpted by Michelangelo. Uh, it's in the city of Florence. It's the statue of David. I don't know if anybody's ever seen it before. I've actually seen it. It kind of towers over you about 12 feet high. Uh, Michelangelo was often commissioned to do works of art. That was how he made his living. Now, if you were going to be commissioned to do a work of art that you were going to get paid for, what would you do? You'd probably do two things. Number one, you would uh, want the best utensils to work with, right? The hammers and the chisels and stuff. Only the best. You know, I have three grown children who all, all are, at some point, or were are, are artists in some degree. Two of them have art degrees, one's a glass blower. And, uh, but we were always going down to Philadelphia to the premier art store called Utrecht's. And I always wondered, Lord, does everything I buy in here have to cost $100? <laughs> $100 or more? It always did. Uh, but you would want the best utensils. Now, once you had those, you would want the best piece of material, right, to work with. Uh, whether it was stone or marble or granite. Because remember, your next job depended on how well this job was, was reviewed, right? So Michelangelo needed the perfect tools and the perfect uh, piece of stone. You'd want an unblemished piece, a, a beautiful piece. Not with Michelangelo. This is a true story. Because one day, in the midst of thinking about this thing he had to create, he was walking down an alleyway and passed a trash heap where another artist had started working on a piece of rock and had discarded it. This is no good. I can't do anything with it. It's too flawed. It's useless. But as Michelangelo stood there gazing at this piece of rock, this granite, he started to consider what it could be in his master craftsman hands. It had been a piece of rock that actually had been abandoned for over 35 years on that trash heap. And he took that piece of rock home, and it became the statue of David. This flawed, can't do anything with it, broken piece of rock became something that people all over the world admire and flock to see. Now, isn't that the same way it is when you think about it in your life and mine? You know, God takes the worst parts of our hearts our past records, our present struggles, the place areas we have unbelief, the things that would shame us the most if anybody knew and we would run for cover. He turns, takes those and he turns them into works of beauty. He turns them into works of art. And he does it through the power of the Holy Spirit and in his greater laboratory here at the church. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are committed to molding each of us into a work of art, into who you want us to be, that you do that through your Holy Spirit and through one another's interactions. Lord, you left the splendor of heaven, the most perfect relationship to ever exist, to step into the mud and muck and mire of humanity. That's something, Lord, on some level we can't comprehend. But it's also something you now call us to do in our own hearts and with each other. So we thank you for this passage that teaches us, yes, the seriousness of following the idols of our heart, but also the hope in the gospel through your indwelling presence, committed to us until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Well, that wasn't very convicting, was it? <laughs> I'm sitting there like trying to pray about a hundred different things. Thank you, John. That was powerful.
powerful, powerful, powerful. I want to say a couple things just before the worship team closes. I want to say thank you to Harvest USA and John. They've been ministering to us for years. You may not even know, but they've trained our, our purity team, and they've counseled a lot of folks from our church, and it just really been a huge blessing to us. And, and I just want to say this. If you, if you need to talk to someone about something like this, um, you know, our church is... You can tell us anything. You can come tell me, Kim, anybody in our church. We're, we're, it's no problem. But if there's still something that you just feel like you can't share with somebody in the church here and you need some help, contact Harvest. Contact them, and that's a place where you can go. Very confidential. Don't, don't suffer, you know, suffer with struggles and silence and, and isolate and all the things that he had talked about. If you need something to talk to, whatever the sexual sin, heterosexual, homosexual, pornography, whatever it is, that's a place you can go. But we also have a tremendous purity team. Um, Mel and Ed head that up, and they meet you know, every couple weeks, and uh, the men's purity group. But there's also women's purity, all kinds of different things that you just have to let us know you need some help. We'll help you with that. So, but, but I want to say thanks to Harvest USA for training our folks, and, and they're there if you need someone to talk to. I also want to say thanks to them for being faithful. A lot of ministries have caved. You've probably been following it in the news. They've caved on this issue uh, with, with, with sexual purity and with homosexuality. They've caved in, but they've, they've, they've been faithful, and it's cost them something. They've lost a lot of support. Churches have actually dropped them because they won't cave in like the other churches. And so I want to encourage you to really pray about supporting this ministry. Really, really important. It's one of the few left that, that's staying strong, and we need to support them. There's a, a box in the back for a special offering that we're uh, taking for today. On, on the back table, you see a special offering box. Whatever goes into there will go to them. You can make it out to the church, and Bob will put one check together for you. But also, if you want to support them on a regular basis, that'd be awesome. Special gifts, whatever you can do, uh, you can grab all their information in the back. That would be a tremendous thing. Uh, John will be back there on, at, with the table, and uh, he'll be answering questions or whatever else. You can sign up. And uh, also, he'll, he's coming to our picnic. He heard about the, he heard the, 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 the commercial from Ed, and he's, he loves ribs and all that stuff, so he's going to be at the picnic, so you're going to be able to talk to him there and, and interact with him there, too. And uh, uh, before I turn it over to the worship team, one thing I did ask for, forget to ask for a prayer on this whole topic, Lenell is in the hospital. Uh, he's in the hospital, and he's, he, we talked last, yesterday, and he's, he's suffering chest pains and weakness and a lot of other things. So if you could be praying for Lenell, and I also have his phone number and stuff if you'd like to contact them let me know and you can get a hold of them more or visit him that would be super okay so turn it over to these guys <laughs> 